0: And what I want to do is just spend a, a few minutes at the beginning of this session and if you come with me to 1 Kings 19 I mentioned it but I want us to look at that now and see how that is relevant to us here. 1 Kings and chapter 19 I'm just going to read those two verses. Here is God ministering recovery to Uh, Elijah, who's got this sense of being alone, this sense of all kinds of things. But come to verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So he's got a threefold job to do And you, I'm sure, know this, that Elijah did anoint Elisha, but he didn't do the other two. He never went to Hazel and anointed him. He, He never went to Jehu and anointed him. And I can only conclude that he was so discouraged or depressed he said, what's the point of it? Now, I want to just share with you what I believe these represent. Because Hazel was a secular leader. He was a secular king. And God said, you've got to anoint him because he's my man. He's going to do my will. And I believe that part of the preparation ministry for the kingdom is we've got to start getting hold of secular rulers and appointing them by our prayers. Hello, did you hear me say that? Now. Right now, in the United States, we've had a tremendous battle to see the right man come to the presidency. And, and I obviously in saying that, I'm not suggesting that God's a Republican. I'm just... <laughs> if, if, if the Democratic candidate had, had a heart for God, then we would all vote a Democrat. But we're after a man that's going to do God's will and, and have God's heart. And I'm praying for both sides of the political divide that men and women of God can start to work together to see the kingdom come. But the battle I'm sure you felt it, I felt it, was absolutely furious and on the day of the election I felt such a weight come upon me that I couldn't, I could not stay upon my feet. I had to get on my knees and I was more or less in travail and I'm not an intercessor, that's not my calling but God needed everybody he could get to get into this battle. And towards the afternoon, as some of you know, um, before the results were in any way known, I, heard, I saw like a newspaper headline which said this. It said, Bush wins by a whisker. That's what I saw. I saw that. And, and I prayed to that end over the next few weeks that what I saw prophetically would come to pass physically. Because I'm sure many of you know that for prophecies to come to pass, we have to wage war to make them happen. Amen. So when God's spoken, that that's not the end of it, that's the beginning of us being able to lay hold by faith of what God wants to do. Now I believe we're called very much to the, I'm going to call it the Hezeel ministry, the appointing of secular rulers that are going to facilitate the purpose of God. It struck me very forcibly when I was doing a lot of uh, teaching and preparation on, because the, the other great thing is the recovery of, of the ruined city of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. Another powerful sector of scripture that we need to understand. And there, their ability to obey the word of God, to fulfil the prophetic word, depended upon who was on the throne in the capital city of the Persian Median Empire. It's, in fact, it summarises this in uh, uh, um, Ezra chapter 6, and verse 16, it says this, that and so the elders were able to rebuild the temple, they prospered according to the commandment of God, according to the prophecies of Daniel, Zechariah and Haggai, and according to the commandment of Cyrus, Darius and Artaxerxes. In other words, having a a favourable, influential king on the throne was as important as, as, as the prophesying of the prophets and of course it all worked together to fulfil the commandment of God. And we get the situation when Cyrus came to the throne and of course we know that Daniel's prayers were very very powerfully influential in causing Cyrus to do what he did. In four years after they were in to beginning to restore the temple two things happened almost simultaneously and that was that Cyrus died but so did Daniel the intercessor. So God lost his king and God lost his intercessor and everything stopped for fourteen years. The the, the son of Cyrus, a guy called Cambyses the Second, who was a real renegade son, he couldn't even wait for his dad to die to take over the empire, and he was a very renegade guy that, that did something totally illegal, which was he reversed a, a, a law according to the Persians and the Medians, which we were not allowed to do. But he did it. And he passed an order that the temple was to stop being built for 14 years. He just overruled, contrary to the law, contrary to all of of righteousness, and he stopped the whole thing dead. And because there was no intercessor, without the intercessor and without the king, the prophetic word of God was on hold until two new prophets came, Haggai and Zechariah, to prophesy and to stir the people into a, a new spirit in the situation. But also equally important was that Darius came to the throne. When these two were in place, the secular king and the prophetic ministry, then in four years they completed what for 14 years they'd been saying was impossible. Now these are lessons that we need. These are written in the Bible for our instruction. So here we find the same thing with, with Hazel. And I believe Hazel represents secular authority and, I, you know, and once again I, I, we could get into this and spend a lot of time on it but it is a very, very serious responsibility that we have. And I want to say that I feel that America has been very remiss in obeying the commandments of Scripture. You know, 1 Timothy 2. But it really goes back to 1 Timothy 18, where Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you must wage a mighty war according to the prophecies that you've received. In other words, receiving prophecy is, if you like, is the equipment for war. It's not an automatic thing that falls out of the sky on your head. Although God, I believe, has prophesied revival for the United States of America, we still have to make it happen. And that's a that's a, a, a almost a contradiction that this side of eternity we're not going to understand. It's my responsibility to see that God's irresistible eternal word and, and purpose is fulfilled. And please don't ask me to explain it because I can't. And so I, I'm God's agent to make his word happen. Amen. And secular authority favorably disposed towards us is going to make a big difference and thank God at last there are sounds now in the White House that we're going to have that sort of administration coming. But this is only the beginning of the war, it's not the end of the war. Now let's for a moment, because I could say a lot about that, let's now for a moment, let's go on to appoint Jehu, king of Israel. Israel represents compromised religion. If you like, it's, it's syncretism because what happened was the Syrians came in and they, they mixed up all the races. They got them to go back to their original, if you like, they feared the gods of the land. So they, they, they reestablished ancient worship of the ancient gods of the lands. And so the, the Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, ended up with a kind of a slightly Christianized or slightly Jewish, Jewishized, I should say, kind of syncretism. They worshipped the gods of the land. They worshipped other gods. Everybody was doing religion in their own way. They all thought it was great. And between them all, surely they're going to touch all the gods of favour. And the second thing that the Syrians did was to bring in a complete destruction of the morality of the nation. So Syrian invasion of a land produced, it destroyed religious purity and it destroyed moral purity and also seriously undermined the family. And I want to tell you that the United States of America has been seriously attacked spiritually by Syria. In the history of the, of the civilizations, you will find that, that it's the attack upon the morality and the attack upon the simplicity of their religion which always precedes them being taken over militarily. A great example of that recently would be the German nation. To think that out of Germany the Moravians came. To think that it was in Germany they had the 100 year prayer meeting. To think that all of Europe... John Wesley included, were impacted and were able to move in their revivals because of what the Moravians taught them. What they did in America is absolutely phenomenal. They were amazing people. That was Germany. Then you get the Reformation under Martin Luther. That was Germany. Then about the turn of the century, something starts to go wrong with the way the Germans think. There was an attack upon what we have come to know as thesis antithesis thinking which is the the way that God thinks which means that there is an absolute non-negotiable truth which is eternal in its nature and anything but that truth is error. Now that's the black and whiteness of God and you'll find many many scriptures which say this is true and that which is not that is not true. God doesn't mess around, he doesn't pull his punches. He says, no, there's one name under heaven by which we might be saved, Jesus, and there's no other name. So don't waste your time on anything else. Now that's, that's how God, God is a total, absolute, thesis, antithesis thinker. And uniquely, Judaism and Christianity were trained by God to think that way. And their, their civilizations were unique in having this kind of thinking. If you've ever lived as I have in, in a a uh, culture which has never been impacted by this kind of thinking, like Hinduism in India, or Confucianism in China, or, or many of the primitive religions of Africa, you will find there's no such way of thinking. There aren't any absolutes. Everything's changeable and variable. And so what came into the German universities about the turn of the century, that is the turn of the 18th into the 19th century. I'm sorry, the 19th into the 20th century, 1800s to the 1900s was that they began to teach synthetic thinking, which is where you go to every sincerely held point of view and find good in it, and then the, the 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 truth must surely be a sort of undefined mixture of all these different opinions about truth. But as there are opinions about truth, everything's negotiable, everything's changing, there are no absolutes. What was morally right last year isn't necessarily morally right today. And that's what destroyed the German nation. Unfortunately, that spread to every institution of education in the western world if you are a a black and white thinker if you talk in absolutes you're considered to be uh, intellectually naive and you need to be re-educated to think in a more intelligent way amen so there's got to be a, a tremendous change now that's what happened to the large majority of the nation of Israel God's people ten tribes were now if you like Syrianized, and were soon to become Babylonianized. Hello, Babylon represents the final military takeover, and I think America at the moment has been thoroughly Syrianized. And if we don't wake up and change things, it won't be long before we're Babylonized—a total, some kind of of. Despotic government will take over this land of freedom, and it won't be because we love freedom, it was because the devils have longed to take this nation over for decades, if not for centuries. And we have a, a massive war on our hands right now that none of us have got any choice in the matter. So we've got to organize ourselves and our churches to be praying a bit like Hazel anointing prayer. We also need to be praying Jehu anointing prayers. Now what is Jehu? Jehu represents the leaders of those religious systems which are not the pure evangelical gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ like the head of Lutheranism, the head of Methodism, the head of the Catholic Church for example. All these are very powerful influential leaders whether you like their religion or whether you don't. They have a lot of say in our nation. And if you like, it's religion, which is the happy hunting ground, particularly of the Jezebelic spirit. That's where you'll find most of the thrust and power of these deceptive things concerning morality. After all, the gay-lesbian movement has tremendous influence. In fact, the Methodist Church, only by one vote, failed to condone um, priests and marriages of people of the same sect. In other words, you can have a lesbian priest or a homosexual priest. And you could have marriages of, of lesbians and only by one vote was that not passed at the last synod last November. That's the
1: Methodist Church.
0: But if a, if a man like John Wesley was to get the driving seat of the Methodist Church again, think what that would do for Methodism. Now I'll give you an example of this. I don't, you probably don't know any of this, but um, it, you know the, the official Church of England is the Church of England. It's actually... A, a breakaway by Henry VIII from the Roman Catholic Church but its official state church of England has a lot of money pours into it and has a lot of power the chief officer of the Anglican Church is appointed by the politically by the Prime Minister of England and that person is called the Archbishop of Canterbury and up until a few years ago we had an Archbishop Rancy was his name who was the most liberal synchristic guy you've ever ever met he didn't believe anything of the fundamental gospel, he was militantly against any belief of the Bible or the myth of the virgin birth of Jesus or that he died on the cross or all that stuff was an anathema to him, he would have um, joint services with Buddhists and with Hindus and if he could get the Muslims to come they were welcome to come as well and, and the whole Anglican church which has got a large influence in the world as well as in Great Britain, was rapidly going downhill And it was in 19... I think it was 86, 87, it was about that time when I was back in England from India and I was leading a three-day prayer and fasting retreat with about 600 pastors and leaders in Britain. And on this particular day as I was praying in the morning God said to me, he said, this morning you are to pray concerning the new Archbishop of Canterbury. Now I was I mean, like all these guys, I rejected denominational Christianity. It was an anathema, it was of the pit. And I realised that there was a horrible hatred, judgmental hatred of these denominations. But nevertheless, they hold vast resources of money, they hold vast resources of buildings, and millions and millions of people are still led by what they say. And this particular morning, because what had happened was Archbishop uh, archbishop Ramsey had just retired and Mrs Thatcher was still Prime Minister then and she was responsible to appoint a new, a new Archbishop and they were having some guesses in the newspaper about who this person would be. They had a list of about six to eight names, all of which were totally depressing. <laughs> and I just was sort of scathingly despising of all this stuff. And then um, this particular morning God said, I want you to pray for it. You know, this, is, this is Jehu. You've got to appoint Jehu. You've got to, by your prayers, you've got to appoint who's going to take over. So when I introduced this to the brothers, it was as popular <laughs> as sort of three-day-old cold porridge. You know, this sort of, there, was no, there was no response. And I said, but this is what God said. Anyway, as we got into it, the Spirit of the Lord came down upon us and helped us. And before long, we really got into this, and we had some fantastic prayer. And as a result of it, what's that? As we got hold of this, and we really felt faith, we really felt power come upon us, and we really got hold of God and said, God, we're praying that that somehow you will overrule and give us a man of God in this very, very influential position. In fact, I remember saying these words. I said, oh God, because the place where the Archbishop of Canterbury sits is in the city of Canterbury, and that's where he's No Episcopal throne is. I said, oh God, I said, give us a Christian at Canterbury. They were the words that I actually said. And they weren't, Mrs. Thatcher was not expected to make a decision for several months. You can imagine our amazement the next morning when we all woke up, because every Englishman begins the day by reading his newspaper. So we were even at the spiritual fast and prayer retreat. So when we got, got our newspapers the next morning, a very Responsible newspaper called the Daily Telegraph, one of the big national newspapers, had this as the headline. Surprise announcement by Mrs. Thatcher. Apparently, at Tuesday afternoon, she made a sudden, unexpected appointment of the new Archbishop of Canterbury. And his name was, um, uh, Carey. I'm trying to give you his first name. Carey was his last name. Because I know a guy called George Carey. It wasn't him, it was a, it, no, it was Carey, anyway. And he was a born-again, Bible-believing, spirit-filled bishop. And and he wasn't on the list. But this was the banner headline on the Daily Telegraph. It said, At last, a Christian at Canterbury. The same words I'd prayed. And I tell you, he has had a powerful influence for good in the Anglican communion around the world. They've had several attempts to get some kind of, they still absolutely repudiate any idea of lesbian or homosexual lifestyle being acceptable. They'll have nothing to do with it. And I tell you, they've been vilified and fact, but he was interviewed, he said, I stand on the word of God, this is offensive to God, I have sympathy for people who are prisoners. But he said, there's no way we're going to tolerate this or, or condone it within the Anglican no. communion. Oh, yeah. And that's a good no, statement. Hallelujah. Yeah. He's done a lot. A lot, you see, so we could if you're here we've got to start praying these prayers, amen. Amen. Now this is all part of the John the Baptist ministry, or if you like the Elijah ministry, this this prepares the ground for the cities to be taken. Amen? Amen? And I think we need to say that we we got we got a shot. I said, Lord, why does Bush only win by a whisker? He said, Because my church in America has been has been apathetic and half hearted about praying these prayers, so, so I've given them a fright. <laughs> that's what I felt God say to me. So I've given them a fright because it, many of us got desperate in prayer during the, you know, the that fiasco of those several years you know, and uh, several weeks. I meant to say, but that's only the beginning. Amen. Now that's preparation for this. Let's move on now, and, and I hope that you will now read. 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Timothy 1, 18 through and say that's going to become a major dimension of our church's prayer life. Okay, then as we've already said, John the Baptist comes in the power of Spirit of Elijah and then in the New Testament Jesus comes as the great fulfillment of the heavenly Elisha. Is that okay? He comes to finish the job at a new level and a new power. And Jesus... Predicts the full manifestation of the forerunner ministry. Because what I want you to see is that at the end of the age, because as Jesus, it's better go for this, come down to, come to Matthew 17. As Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration where he, he, Moses and Elijah have appeared to him, I've not time to go into the significance of that. I said I wouldn't say that during this, <laughs> during this conference. And he says in verse 11, they say in verse 10, why did, the, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, indeed Elijah is coming first and he will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already and they did not know him but did to him whatever they wished likewise the son of man must also suffer at their hands then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist so John the Baptist had been if you like a fulfilment of preparing the way for the king of the kingdom and for the beginning of the kingdom but there's going to be a new preparation at the end of the age for the second coming of the great king of the kingdom and if you like the final glorious manifestation of the kingdom as much as it can happen on earth before he comes to consummate it now I'm not really very clear how far it can go before Jesus comes but one thing I'm convinced about he will come to consummate a victorious church that's got a few battle scars a few cuts and bruises but he's still standing on the devil's neck that's, that's, I could turn you to many scriptures and this was the view of the church until 150 years ago if you ever read the Puritan Hope you will see that right up until 150 years ago the church expected to be triumphant and victorious and if you like to herald in by its victory, its blooded, perhaps battle-scarred victory but nevertheless they're standing there as the victors and the triumphers who now welcome in the final consummation of the kingdom by the coming of the king. The idea that the church becomes a worn out, beaten, run out of town, old hag the bride of Christ is without blemish or spot or wrinkle or anything. She's beautiful. And that Jesus has sort of comes in a rescue helicopter to, to get us out of the mess before the devil takes completely over, that is unbiblical and it's led the church astray and it's conditioned the church to expect the devil's takeover. And I see it, and I say this unashamedly, I see it as a serious heresy which hit the church of Jesus Christ about 150 years ago. And as I've traced that, and traced other men who've done a lot more work on this, it seems to me that this error was actually started by the Jesuits as a counter-reformation movement. So we're actually believing Catholic doctrine when we say it's good for us to sit back and let the devil take over the world. Now that was a shock to me when I discovered that, but it made me all the more sure that the evangelical world has largely been living in an unknown deception for several decades. Now that doesn't make me popular in certain places, but it's still the truth. Amen? So I'm not standing at the rapture bus waiting for God to get me out of a a, a a destroyed world, but I'm here to change the world and bring the kingdom in for Jesus. Amen? So we're going to see, and I believe we already are seeing, a powerful individual anointed ministry that prepares for the kingdom to come. Now I want to touch, this. turn over the page to the next page, number 6. And, I'll, and now I've got this title at the top, Jesus Draws the line. Up to John the Baptist, or John the Baptist anointing? And we've seen how he prepared the way. Now the point of this anointing is to prepare the way. It's not an end in itself. Now, with Jesus, the kingdom has come. And with Jesus comes what I've come to call, and we're going to see much more of this, I've come to call a kingdom anointing. And there are several things that I want to mention about this. I'm just going to give you some words. If, if you look at someone like John the Baptist, anointed by God, used by God, the things that mark out this John the Baptist ministry, which you're going to have to look at and see is that number one it's an individual, he's a loner he's on his own Elijah said, I'm the only one left, there's nobody but me John the Baptist was a man on his own he was no team, there was no relationships. he was there to do this for God and he was incredibly powerful and incredibly effective but it was his, it was his loneliness, his individualness that made him vulnerable so where you see powerful individual ministries that God has been using up to this present time then I'm telling you that we're coming to the stage now where that phase is over because they weren't there to bring the kingdom in they were there to prepare the way for the kingdom the purpose of these great healing evangelistic ministries was to bring forth a healing evangelistic church not that we should spectate them while they did it for us as we sat in passive admiration. The purpose of the Ephesians 4.11 ministry, the apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers, is, is that we are to bring the church to the work of the ministry. So if I'm a successful apostolic ministry, I cause the church to become apostolic, to become the sent ones who forcefully advance the kingdom. If I'm a, an Ephesians 4 prophet, then I cause the church to become prophetic, and to see prophetically, and to pray and cause to come into manifestation the prophetic word that God has spoken. Now that's a corporate activity. If I'm an Ephesians 4 evangelist, I cause the church to be evangelistic. So I train people to be evangelists, not simply preach evangelistic crusades while they all watch me in admiration. Amen? And the power of signs and wonders and healings and miracles is for an impartation of faith to the church, so it's it's normal for every church member to have that as part of their daily equipment. That when they go out into the world and they meet somebody in H E B that's dying of cancer, they say, well, let me lay hands on you. Right there, bang, and they're here. Now, that, now that's the church. That's the kingdom. So one of the first things you see about the kingdom as distinct from the John the Baptist ministry is that it is a corporate thing. It's not an individual thing. That's the first major distinction. The kingdom by definition has to be in plurality and that's why the moment Jesus was anointed one of his first acts was to get another 12 involved then another 72 involved because he knew the kingdom had to be corporate. And he even sort of violated time and I I said, Lord, how did you do that? How did you get all these guys moving in the power of the kingdom before you'd been to Calvary? And he said, said, this is what he said to me personally he said, Alan, I was so desperate to get the kingdom moving which I could not do on my own in a really significant way he said I use my Calvary credit card that's what he said to me I went to the Father and said Father when the time comes I'm going to pay the full price at Calvary but could I have kingdom power by credit please before I paid the price at Calvary because I can't wait for the world to feel and experience the power of the kingdom and I can't do it by myself I've got to do it by impartation to these men that are all around us so from the very beginning it had to be a corporate thing whereas the individual isolated ministry wonderful as it is and wonderful as it's been I believe it's now a passing phase and, and Jesus did not go out and preach the kingdom until John the Baptist had been put in prison because it was the end of one era and it was the beginning of the other era. He closed one before he could open the other. And we need to learn this lesson. So, when is the kingdom going to come to San Antonio? When individual ministries see the kingdom as more important than their individual ministries. When we see the power of our corporality is millions times more than even the most anointed of us in our individuality. That's why it says the first thing that Jesus says is he says, he says, I tell you this, although there's never been anybody greater than John the Baptist born a woman, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. You see, if you look at San Antonio, we've got one or two mega churches here. Some of them are well known. They're on television all the time and they have had, and I believe for a while we'll continue to have a very effective ministry. But let's try and get this picture. Over the city of San Antonio, great demonic principalities sit here in defiance and anger against any manifestation of the kingdom of God and they've got to be moved out of the way. And it's the same for your city from wherever you come. Now just imagine, as I was praying over this, the God said to me, Well let's try and get a picture like this out. Let's think of Saddam Hussein as, as a as an example of a very, very evil man, a a demonic principality if ever there was one, a demonic gate. Amen? Imagine that James Bond goes to deal with him. Now there's nobody individually more muscular, more able, more fantastic, more equipped as an individual than James Bond. So James Bond arrives in uh, the capital of um, uh, Iraq to deal with him. Now, and he, he sort of flies through the roof or whatever he does, and there he is, I've come to deal with you. Now Saddam Hussein, I believe, has got the, the intelligence, the evil... Uh, cunning and the equipment to deal with James Bond. I doubt if James Bond would come out the winner. I think although he's very brave, although he's very, very uh, skillful, although he's incredibly equipped and all the rest of it and he's got got tremendous courage, but he would actually be a suicide mission, I believe. I'm going to go individually, I'm going to to go and take Saddam Hussein out. But now let's imagine instead of James Bond, I, I don't know what he or she looks like, but imagine that we've got a new ambassador to the United States of America. Imagine it's some man with spectacles about five feet tall that's never worked out and hasn't got that much muscular power. He saunters in to talk to Saddam Hussein and says, I have a word to you from the nation that I represent and the president who I represent, and I'm just telling you this and this and this. I tell you, and if you said, I'm, I just, we're just telling you, you've got 10 days. To pull out or we're bringing all the power and might of our great nation against you. Now, which would make him tremble more? <laughs> now, this little man is not impressive in his individual. It's what he represents that makes him so powerful. Amen? It's what he's part of that makes him so powerful. And if you can see that we've got, around San Antonio, we've got, I don't know how many, we've got hundreds of churches. We did count them. We've got several over 1,000 on our database in San Antonio. Most of them are 50 or less people. Just imagine in the south side where most of the Hispanic people are. Let's imagine that 200 churches come together with an average membership of 100 each. Now, that corporate they represent, if you take 200 times 100, that's 20,000. Is that not correct? That's bigger numerically than the biggest megachurch in San Antonio. Now, if any one of those pastors passes hundred people, but he's now moving out with all that power. Imagine it's a thousand churches of hundred each, and that comes to hundred thousand people. If they're all praying, they're all part of the kingdom, and he goes to a demon in that corporate strength. Although he only pastors hundred, he's a little itsy-bitsy no nobody, because of what he's now part of and what he's speaking out from it has tremendous impact in that spirit realm now can you see the beginnings of what the power of the kingdom is he said something greater then let's move into Matthew 12 for a moment and I'll just lay this in here come to Matthew 12 because several times in the New Testament and that doesn't come out in the English because the English unfortunately does not have a neuter tense the Greek language has three tenses. It has male, female, and neuter. And, and in the Greek, it comes out so much more plainly than it does in the English. But if you come to Matthew 12, continuing straight on from what Jesus says about John the Baptist, you come to verse 6. I say to you that in this place, there is, my King James, New King James says, there is one greater than the temple. What it ought to be translated is, is something because it's Newton. there is something greater than the temple so what we're being told is and what Jesus is trying to get these guys to do say don't look at me yeah, although he's the, the almighty son of God although he's the king of glory although he's the beginning of the manifestation of the kingdom of God he wants your eyes to be on the thing that he's bringing not upon the person that he is because there's a day coming when he's going to go back to the Father. But the thing which he started, the kingdom, is going to go on increasing upon the earth. His, his uh, activity on the earth is temporary, but the activity of the kingdom is going to, going to advance with ever increasing power until it fills the whole earth according to the prophecy of Daniel. Can you see that now? So I believe many of us have got to get our eyes off the persons and get our eyes on the thing. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying, saying the kingdom, the thing, the kingdom is greater than the temple. You see if you've got the kingdom in your church even though you're meeting in a couple of rooms in a shopping malls and you haven't got some fantastic building with all the facilities if you've got the kingdom there it's more powerful than fancy buildings without the kingdom. Can you hear me? Now to have good facilities with the kingdom is the best possible combination. I'm not against building, I'm just saying that they are not any good on their own. It's the kingdom which is the power, it's not the buildings. You have the latest media techniques, you can have everything that you like of this modern, amazing age. And that's useful as a peripheral help, but the power of the kingdom is the issue. And wherever you are, whatever you are, you can have the kingdom. And it's far, far greater than the temple. In fact, the temple was only used for one day for a kingdom purpose and then uh, think about that because on the beginning of Jesus's ministry he cast out the money changers well they put it all back the way it was and as he comes to the end of his ministry he casts them out again in the beginning he said this is a house of merchandise but at the end of his ministry he said it's become a den of thieves and there's all kinds of, of, of wicked practice to make money out of people so he clears them all out and for one day we have extravagant praise for one day the sick and the lame come and get healed. And for one day, he says, this house is to be a house of prayer for the nations. So for one day those buildings were being used for the kingdom. And then it went back to being religious again. It was never used for the kingdom again. So the kingdom's much more important than the building. Can you hear what I'm saying? Now come on into Matthew 12. Come, come on to verse 40, uh, 41 Then the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Now Nineveh was a big city, it took three days to walk across it. Jonah comes rather unwillingly to preach to this city and God so anoints his ministry that the whole city comes from keying right down to repentance and for almost 150 years God gave Nineveh another lease of life. It was a powerful, powerful repentance, which I'm sure you've all read about. Now what Jesus is saying is, he's saying the kingdom is more powerful than Jonah. Now often, we're looking for someone to come to our city and to be, if you like, have a a Jonah-sized ministry to bring the nation to repentance and and the whole city will fall on its knees because God's used a man. Jesus is saying, if you get the kingdom working in your city, it'll be more powerful than Jonah. uh, Can you hear what I'm saying? So if the kingdom comes to San Antonio it's going to have a more convicting effect bring more to repentance and more change my city than than someone with the anointing and power of of Jonah coming to my city. So I'd rather have the kingdom than Jonah. Does that make sense to you? So when the kingdom comes it's the answer to bringing cities to conviction of sin and to powerful and successful evangelistic ministry. It's the kingdom that does it. Kingdoms will gather the whole city in repentance and the kingdom will produce many, many multitudes of people who now become believers and followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then the third thing it says is that the kingdom is greater than Solomon. And if you think around the world, think of trying to solve the Middle East crisis, Clinton did his best, and there's no one, I think, cleverer than him in that kind of manipulative negotiation, but he couldn't make it work. The sore in Northern Ireland continues to this day. Crossover's as bad as it was, and if you go to uh, um, Rwanda and Burundi, it's about to blow up again by the look of things. You've got the Congo problem you've got this assassination in the new democratic Republic of Congo you've got Ethiopia unresolved you, you all just come to America and go to any downtown area and say how are we going to solve these problems? and would you agree that we need something more than the wisdom of some clever guy? but what we're being told is that there, there is a wisdom in the kingdom because God's going to speak directly his answer to many unsolvable problems but it's not going to be the wisdom of man it's going to be the wisdom of the kingdom it's going to come if you like through our corporality so it's not one great whiz that's going to solve the world's problems it's going to be the power of the kingdom and the other thing about Solomon was that he brought to his nation a time of unprecedented peace it was if you like it was the conclusion of all that David had prepared for but it was Solomon who brought the kingdom In its fullness, David started it but Solomon completed it. It was a time of unprecedented prosperity, a time of unprecedented economic success, it was a time of peace and law and order and the fame of Solomon went out across the world. The Queen Queen of Sheba came all the way to sit and said, the half hasn't been told me. I tell you, if America gets the kingdom into its culture, into its economic problems, into its social problems, into its racial problems and and unsolvable problems get solved by the power of the kingdom. The whole world's going to come running and say, tell tell us how you did it. And they'll say, man, the half hasn't been told us. Oh, that's what it is, it's the kingdom. If the kingdom comes to San Antonio, if the kingdom comes to Houston, if the kingdom comes to Boston or any of the towns that are represented here, and you, your problems are solved drugs drug, drug, the drug problem is gone we don't have any more uh, violent crime in our city how did you do it? well it was the kingdom that came new police chief? no it wasn't a new police chief although he, he was useful and he he's a man of God and he's given his life to Jesus and that's helped no end the mayor's with us and everybody's with us because they're all in the kingdom together but it's the kingdom which did this thing can you not see that? something greater So if we can have as a passion to see the Kingdom come then I believe the outworking of that is we're going to see transformed cities but without the Kingdom we haven't got a hope. Not just intercessors, although they have a part to play. It isn't just the right political people in the right places although they have a part to play. It isn't just any one of these things but it's all of these things coming into the harmony and submission of our corporality in the kingdom of God and then we've got something which will break every chain and it will be irresistible as it forcefully advances the kingdom Amen we've got just a few minutes what I've got now um, so I I say it halfway down through page 6 Jesus came to begin something not just to be someone does that make sense to you now He was, of course, and is the almighty king of the kingdom. But he said, look, don't just look at me as an individual. See what I'm bringing in. I'm bringing in the corporate power of the kingdom. And indeed, it'll make the kingdom, that's what will make our king glorious. So if you want to glorify the king, there's no better way that you can do it than to bring the kingdom in. Because that will set him on his throne and magnify his name after all, Solomon was so great because of the kingdom Amen? So it's not taking away from Jesus, it's actually magnifying Jesus Amen. I hope you can see that. Now what I've got now is to look at some of the things which um, are the difference between John the Baptist anointing and Kingdom anointing and I'm going to run these through pretty quickly because we We are getting a little bit behind, although I'm doing my best. And the reason I put these here is because you can use them as a test concerning yourself and concerning the churches that you lead or the Christian scene where you come from. Now here's the first thing, bottom of page 6. It says in John chapter 10, verses 41 and 42, no sign, he did no miracle, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. In other words, it was the kind of ministry that can accurately teach the truth about Jesus, but doesn't do anything miraculous. That's John the Baptist Christianity. And I've been crying out all all my life, as long, long as I can remember, since I was baptized in the Spirit, because of the environment I was in, which was the, was the dark, demonic, blatant hostility of India, I had to be, I had to move in power, otherwise I hadn't got a chance. So in a way it drove me to seek God for power. And I've seen a flow of the miraculous through my ministry all the years that I've been in the ministry. But I've never been set in the church as a worker of miracles, but... It happens on a regular basis and it's like attesting the word that I preach. And Without that I would feel a fraud. In my own family I've experienced some powerful healing miracles in my own body. My wife has uh, experienced that. My youngest son David was congenitally deaf when he was born. He was gloriously healed when he was baptised in the Spirit at four and a half years old. My daughter Rachel should have died in a uh, Zimbabwe Hospital, when the devil tried to kill her during a Binal monkey Crusade, now she's a walking miracle of what God can do. So it's right through my family. Right through my family. And I expect God to do the miraculous. Right. But I tell you, th- there's come a point where, I mean, I have a lot of concern for Texas, but that's not my only concern. But as I've started to go out and begin to encourage groups of pastors to become, you know, kingdom groups of pastors, it's amazing how many of them have been hit by the devil. It's amazing how many of them do not know how to respond to those attacks. And I've been angry, and I use that word advisedly, I've been angry at how many precious men of God and I could go to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, I could go to other parts of America, where as they started to advance the kingdom, usually through the direct attack of witches' covens, vicious attacks have come back upon them to strike them with all kinds of Malaises and diseases, and frequently it will be an attack of cancer. And I got to the place where I was mad about this because my Bible says that if you go against the devil in the power of the kingdom, Jesus says I give you authority, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And I'm not time to tell all these stories. I'm not time to explain why. Sometimes I understand why there was a. Um, a complication which allowed that attack but I tell you a militancy came into me and I said god god you've got to give us a breakthrough I said I'm claiming in Jesus name that there's not going to be one pastor in Texas that I'm in touch with that's ever going to die through cancer I said I want I want power over cancer and in, and in a meeting in uh, about 6 months ago I mean a power of god came upon me and and I knew a fresh anointing came upon me, and I heard God speak to me, and he said, something that I was not expecting, he said, I'm giving you, I'm answering your prayer, I'm giving you power over cancer like you've never known before. And then he said, I'm going to give you power over AIDS, because he said, I want to make a powerful advance into the homosexual and lesbian community, and if you have an answer to AIDS, they'll come running to you. So I'm going to give you victory over AIDS. And I've had a little bit of experience with that, but not much. In Poland, we saw some mighty things happen a few weeks ago in the AIDS realm. But I tell you, something's going to break out in our nation where we're going to see hundreds and hundreds of dying lesbian and, and homosexual men and women who are going to turn to Jesus, be powerfully physically healed, and they're going to go back to their community and be a thousand times more effective evangelists than we can God's just going to outpower the devil. All I can say is this, from June of last year to this present day, everybody that i prayed for with cancer has been healed. Everyone that I've had the feedback on. Sometimes it's been a battle, sometimes it's been two or three times, we've had to hit it again and again, but I tell you, uh, by God's grace, I'm not letting go of a single one of them. I'm at war with the devil. And we're going to see those victories. Amen? Amen. So John did no miracle, but Jesus and all kingdom Christians do. Isaiah 8.18, which is linked to Hebrews 2.13, says this. It's the Spirit of Christ speaking. It says, I and the children whom the Lord has given me, we are for signs and wonders. That's what we're for. Did Jesus do signs and wonders? Absolutely. Well, we, who's his children? I'm his child. Therefore, that's what I'm for. Right, come on to the next field, the next page. We're going to stop in a moment. Just do this and we're going to stop. You find this in um, John chapter 5, verse 35, where Jesus is bearing witness to John the Baptist and he says of him that he was, or a burning and a shining light. And you were willing to for a time to rejoice in his light. So Jesus points to him again, as exo- this great man of God and, and, and refers to the mighty anointing and the power of his ministry. He says, he was a burning and a shining light. Then, As you come to John chapter 1, we're told two things there. It starts in verse 4, really, where we're told that Jesus is described by John the, the Apostle, not John the Baptist. He says, in him, that is Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light, that is the light of that life, shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And you come down to verse 8, now he's talking about John the Baptist. He says of John the Baptist, he was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That, that is Jesus, was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. And so we make this clear distinction between the light that John the Baptist was, and the light that Jesus was. John the Baptist was a burning and a shining light, but he was not the light. Jesus was the light. And the interesting thing is, that once the kingdoms come, Jesus starts talking to his disciples in the same terms he talks about himself. I am the light of the world, you are the light of the world. And he, and he talks to them in the same terms, because although he never said it of John the Baptist, in fact he said quite the reverse,
1: he's not that light.
0: But when it comes to the kingdom, Like its founder, it is the light. Amen? And we're told in verse 5 that the core to that light is the life that we live. Now that's so powerful and so important that we're going to have a whole session, probably I think it's on... Thursday or Friday, we're going to look at the first letter of John and why John wrote that letter in AD 95 and the the whole burden of that letter is to get Christians to believe that by the power of that eternal life which is in the Father they are now equipped to live exactly the same life see John the Baptist never manifested eternal life on earth, I'm quite sure when he died and got to heaven he got eternal life, I'm sure he'll be there and I hope that he won't be offended by the things I'm saying about him right now. But I think he, I think he would totally agree with me and say, Alan, you did a great job. You,
1: because I
0: never could move into these things, never could be these things. One thing I could not be was to be that life on earth. But boy, when I got it in heaven, I realised what i had been missing on earth. Now most of the evangelical Christian world expects to get eternal life when they get to heaven. They don't expect to manifest eternal life on earth. But that's where we need it. We need it now to let the world see what that eternal life is like. And that eternal life has got many dimensions, which we'll go into in a later session this week. But I'm just going to make the point now that I do not expect to live an ordinary life. I've got to live an eternal life. I've got to live a supernatural life. Life that is as much a light as Jesus was. Oh, brother, that's blasphemy. No, it's not. It's, first of all, it's biblical, and second, it's absolutely necessary for this dark world to see that light. Amen? Well, we're going to stop here and have another break, and I'm going to look at one or two more things after the break. Does anybody want to ask...